This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. A happy new year to you. I hope your Christmas tide has been a good one. Much has gone on with me since last we spoke. Of course, I traveled to Italy in October for the first ever cultural debris excursion. My friend Tom Ruby and I led two different groups in Genoa. Then he and I traveled to Rome. We explored that city. I made Negronis for a Monsignor. And we attended a papal audience. It was amazing to see wonderful places, eat terrific food, and make new friends. There will no doubt be more discussion of that time in future episodes. We are making plans for 2023 excursions now, and those will be announced soon. I hope you might be able to go. If you have interest in learning more, let me know at culturaldebrispodcast at gmail.com, and I'll also provide details here when I have those nailed down. One of my favorite activities during Advent is running a book exchange on Twitter based on the Nordic tradition of the Yalabaka Flot, the Christmas Book Flood. It was the fourth year I've done this, and we had more participants than ever before. It's something I would encourage you to find and participate in, or maybe run your own next Advent. Who doesn't like getting a book? If you would like to support Cultural Debris, I would encourage you to become a patron at Patreon. There are various levels You can pick your spot, and there's a link in show notes. I very much appreciate the current patrons and invite you to join them. And if you could take a moment, please give a five-star rating to the podcast on Apple or your provider of choice. It helps others find what we're doing here. Our poem is from W.H. Auden, The Three Wise Men. The weather has been awful. The countryside is dreary, marsh, jungle, rock, and echoes mock, calling our hope unlawful, but a silly song can help along, yours ever and sincerely. At least we know for certain that we're three old sinners, that this journey is much too long, that we want our dinners, and miss our wives, our books, our dogs, but have only the vaguest idea why we are what we are. To discover how to be human now is the reason we follow this star. My guest is Oz Guinness. Long a resident of the Washington, D.C. area, Guinness was born in China and educated at Oxford. He is a prolific author, most recently of The Great Quest and Zero Hour America, both from IVP. In our conversation, we discuss the cultural crisis in America and if a turnaround is even possible. Oz also discusses his childhood in China, his time with Francis Schaeffer, a chance meeting with Winston Churchill, and whether or not he receives free shipments of bottles from Guinness. Please join me as I talk with Oz Guinness. Oz Guinness, welcome to Cultural Debris. Thank you so much, Alan. What a privilege to be with you. Well, it's an honor to have you on, sir. You are coming to us from Washington, D.C., I believe. Uh, you are a, uh, a foreigner originally to our shores. What would possess you to spend time in our nation's capital? Well, I, I live here in McLean, not very far from the CIA, and um, ever since we moved to the U.S. in 1984, we've been living here. Even people who don't like Washington, of which there are many, all tend <laughs> to come here at some point in the year. So it's a fascinating place and, of course, the center of so much of the nation's discussions. So it's a great privilege to live here. But as you say, I'm a visitor a great admirer of this country, but not American. Well, I I believe that your uh, your background uh, in different areas uh, helps give you a a good perspective on our country, and perhaps one that that we ourselves 
may not see. And I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about that. You, um, you're a little bit of a, of a, uh, international man of mystery because you, you have, uh, a, an Irish background. You were born in China, educated in England, and then have chosen to live in the U S for the past several decades. So, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's a, that's a, a wild, uh, ride on your resume. Well, it also helps understand, you know, the, old saying of Rudyard Kipling, what knows he of England who only England knows? In other words, you need to travel a bit to see the force of contrast. I'm a great believer in that little principle. Contrast is the mother of clarity. And many Americans don't understand their system because they don't admire history and they don't travel enough and think about the differences when you look back from abroad and see the distinctiveness of this wonderful country. Yeah, I, I certainly think that that's true. Um, that's something uh, that I think Mark Twain even even talked about, uh, how travel is a uh, is a, a great tool for breaking down prejudices, and I think that that is true. But you also point out well that it helps to bring perspective, perhaps to our own land that we that we wouldn't get otherwise. Well, you know, my being born in China gave me the first savage contrast because I was there for the first two years of the reign of terror and the beginning of the Chinese Revolution. So well, many years. I, I, yes, I absolutely want to talk to you about that. Tell, tell us about that. How, how did you come to be in China as as a young uh, a young boy and uh, and do you have do you have clear memories of that time? Oh, absolutely. But not at the very beginning, of course. And my grandfather was the first in our family to go out to China. He was one of the first Western doctors, and he founded a hospital, which is a flourishing Chinese hospital today. He treated the last emperor and the empress dowager in the imperial palace. Oh, amazing. My parents were born in China, and I was born in China. I and my two brothers were born in World War II. And you remember World War II began in China four years before Pearl Harbor. So when the Japanese invaded, they killed 17 million. And to stop the Japanese army, the Chinese flooded the Yellow River. And overnight, they killed 900,000 of their own people. And then we found ourselves, my mother was a surgeon, we found ourselves in an area in a famine in which five million died in three months, sadly, including my own two brothers. And when we moved from that area, we moved to Nanjing. It was in the Nanking then. It was the capital of so-called free China. Um, And it had been the Ming capital many centuries before. So I was there when Lin Bao and the Red Army took over and the reign of terror began. And they festooned the town with loudspeakers. And there were trials every morning and executions every afternoon. And the fear was palpable. For those two years, I was nine at the end of it. So I definitely clearly remember it. Have etched in my mind the, the, the savage contrast of American freedom and Marxism in that form. Well, uh, of course, that time was one of one of the uh, great, and I don't mean that in a positive way, but just significant events of the twentieth century. And, and and in many ways, uh, I suppose one of the the more the most significant events of, of human history. Uh, what can we decades later uh, l- learn? What lessons can we as Americans learn from? Uh, those events and that kind of revolution that the Chinese faced? Well, Alan, just take the fact that it is the fifth of the great modern revolutions. And if you compare and contrast them, the first was the English Revolution, 1642, second, the American, the third, the French, 1789, the fourth, the Russian, 1917, and then the Chinese, which we've been talking about, 1949. Now, if you look at the big five, many people don't actually put the English one at the beginning because it failed. The others all succeeded in their way. 
But while the English failed and the Americans succeeded, they are actually both very similar, uh, despite the failure of the English one, because they both came out of the Reformation rediscovery of the Hebrew Exodus, the Torah. And many Americans don't realize the roots of their own revolution. So covenant became constitution. And you find notions like the consent of the governed, separation of powers, things like that in the Old Testament, the Jewish book, the Hebrew scriptures, the book of Exodus, and the book of Deuteronomy. So to understand the American experiment, you've got to go back much deeper than 1776 and the revolutionary generation. And today, with so much of an attack on that, we need both to understand the roots of radical left, but also the roots of the American Revolution. So put it like this. President Trump talks about make America great again, and President Biden of restoring the soul of America. But neither of them talk about what made America great in the first place. And what are those roots that need to be kept alive well? Well, I, I think that that's, that's certainly true. We, we hear these these politicians of whatever stripe they are appealing to this kind of restoration idea. Um, but it's always fairly vague about, about what that means. Right. And I think that that, that's the point you really, that, that, that they're not really talking fundamentals. Um, our political class is not really known for depth and nuance. I don't think. Um, and, and certainly that's getting worse and not better. But compare this, Alan, with the, say, the 1850s, which was a previous time when America was deeply divided. You had a Lincoln. And Lincoln addressed what he called the better angel of the American nature and his profound conviction about the importance of the Declaration of Independence. And then he addressed the evils such as slavery and the potential breakup of the Union. We don't, you know, my first prime minister and someone I had the privilege of meeting when I was a teenager was Winston Churchill. Churchill, like Lincoln, had an incredible sense of history and he knew the people he was leading. And we need leaders like that today. I'm not partisan. I'm not so interested in party politics, but we need a national leader who can call America back. Lincoln spoke of a new birth of freedom. I think today America needs a new new birth of freedom, if you could put it that way. But we need a leader with a sense of history. If, if you look back, um, even the years prior, the years prior to the to the American Civil War, and you had you had politicians. Of course, I'm I'm speaking to you from Lexington, Kentucky, and not very far from here is the home of Henry Clay. Um, and you had men like Daniel Webster and John C. Calhoun uh, of differing viewpoints, certainly, but men of depth and thought and seriousness. But at the same time, you had a you had a culture and a a society that could produce men like that. Do we have a society that can that can even produce a leader like you're talking about? Is that something that that we're even capable of having? Well, far be it from me as a foreigner to knock your education. But I'm <laughs> you know the English school I went to, I didn't realize how extraordinary it would be many years later. But my headmaster, he talked about Pericles and you know, some of the Roman leaders as if he knew them. And he did know Winston Churchill. And he talked about them as vividly and freshly as he knew Churchill. And I, looking back, I'm incredibly grateful for that living, vivid sense of history. Whereas for many Americans I know, history is something, well, you you outsource it to Google. And if you have an argument over dinner, you quickly look up in your smartphone what exactly the date was or whatever. And that's about all they know of history. But that's tragic because just as humans, we humans, we're not like the animals because we have an incredible memory going backwards, an incredible imagination going forwards. And in the same way, we have history moving backwards and we can think forward strategically. And we've got to keep those alive and fresh in every generation. 
or freedom dies. Well, and that, that takes us to, uh, to your most recent book, which is called Zero Hour America. And in it, you argue that we are at a moment in American, the, I guess, the, the American story where the, the American mission, as it were, uh, is failing, that we, that we are stumbling, that we are at a moment of crisis, and that if we don't choose correctly, then America, as we have conceived of it, is not something that, that will exist going forward. How, how can we fix America? How do we make America great again? Well, in a, in a real sense. Yes. No, a great question, Alan. Let me put what I see as the crisis in three words, which I have in the book. Revolution, oligarchy, homecoming. By revolution, I mean the crisis brought about by wokeism and the radical left. And we need to go into the roots of that because it's not classical Marxism, say, that I saw in China under Mao Zedong. It's a form of cultural Marxism. We can discuss that. The second one, oligarchy. You can see, although Americans talk about democracy, in the last gen- last 50 years or so, there's been a growing division between the elites and ordinary people seen very, very clearly during the pandemic. And you can see a, a, a diminishing of the middle class. And America, in many ways, looks like what's called an expertocracy. The elites know better. They are the brightest and the best, and they know what's good for the rest of us and so on. That. I would say again, God forbid. Homecoming, you all know that word. It's a very American word. I had never heard it till I came to this country. But that's not what I mean. People generally know the Greek word for a turnaround, repentance, a turnaround of heart and mind and spirit, the word metanoia. But many people don't know the Hebrew word, which is deeper. It means an about turn, but also a coming home coming back to truth, coming back to first principles. And that's what America needs. That was Lincoln's new birth of freedom. Slavery had gone so far that the nation was coming off the rails. And you needed a new birth of freedom in the light of the Declaration. And I'm saying today, you need a new new birth of freedom, going back to a real understanding of the brilliant ordering of freedom that the American experiment represents. Well, and this kind of gets to uh, earlier understanding of the idea of revolution. And I think you you talk about um, the differences between the American Revolution and, say, and the French Revolution, um, which which very often, because they both use that that term revolution, and you know, because Edmund Burke was was very clear on this. They're very different things, right? They're they're not they're not attempting to do the same thing. Ultimately, the idea of the I guess the proper earlier understanding of revolution is a re, really a it's a conservative act. It's a return to that which uh, was practiced before, was known before, um, that has been corrupted in some way, and I, I feel like that that's. That's sort of what we need to have rather than this radical vision uh, that, that, well, like China saw and we've seen in so many other places. But, you know, Alan, many people don't realize quite how the radical left came. Because, you know, James Billington, the great librarian of Congress, he points out the French Revolution only lasted 10 years in France. Then came Napoleon, dictator. But like a huge volcanic explosion, the lava flow has gone on ever since. And three great lava flows have flowed out. The first, it's important for America, but not for today. It's what's called revolutionary nationalism in the 19th century. The second is revolutionary socialism, or one word, communism, designed in the 19th, but breaking out in the Russian Revolution in the 20th. But that's not really what we're facing. We're facing the third lava flow, cultural Marxism. It goes back to a gentleman, as you know, Antonio Gramsci, sat in jail under Mussolini, trying to figure out a better way why Marx didn't quite have it right. And he put the emphasis not on economics, but on culture. 
and the so-called culture gatekeepers win them and you win the culture. Now that became very important at the end of the 60s when the leader of the Frankfurt School in this country, Herbert Marcuse in San Diego, called for, quote, a long march through the institutions. In other words, they wouldn't win in the streets. So they needed to win the colleges, universities, the press, the media, the so-called culture industry, Hollywood and entertainment, and then sweep round and win the whole culture. And that's what I mean by the radical left. It's called wokeism. <laughs> in many ways, they've tried to soften their rhetoric. So, you know, when I was a student in the 60s, they talk of conscientization, mm. giving people a revolutionary awareness. Well, that's a long and ugly, complicated term. The simpler term today, woke. And they've done that across the board, softening their rhetoric. But make no mistake, the end game is still revolution and subversion, not only of the American Republic, but of the entire Western world and its ways. You know, I, I feel like we're seeing, um, we're seeing on the one hand, um, kind of the clearly the victory of that that leftist march through the institutions. I mean, the colleges were taken, the the foundations were taken, the the media outlets were taken. I mean, that, that that's clear. I don't think there's any question about that. At the same time, we're also seeing the, I guess, sort of the breakdown and failure of a lot of those institutions. Newspapers are closing, colleges are closing, um, and the sort of those cultural institutions that they've captured and have held and have have done a lot of damage from, at the same time, those are starting to falter. Is that perhaps a fissure that can be leveraged from uh, from a more traditionalist standpoint? Will uh, or how do we how do we combat uh, the the left or the cultural Marxism in that way? No, I think what you're saying is incredibly important, and an area you can see it very very clearly is the Christian Church. Where the church has gone woke, <laughs> it's declining visibly by the year. And the collapse, say, of the Episcopal Church following the pandemic is absolutely drastic. If they didn't have the millions of Trinity Wall Street, they'd be in trouble. In other words, they didn't have the millions treasured up by their dead white European fathers. They'd be right. in trouble. But those are the very people they try to attack. Now, that, that's an extreme form, but it would be drastic to America if the intelligentsia are dead set against the original notion of America. You can't have a nation surviving whose intellectuals are openly opposed to what the nation's about. And many, as you said, in the academic world are closer to the French Revolution and its heirs, postmodernism, for example, than they are to the American Revolution. And that, that, that means the end of the republic. Or you take the crisis of civic education in the schools, because public schools were incredibly important. They kept alive the unum, the uniting first principles, that balanced the American pluribus and allowed you to achieve your motto, a pluribus unum. But of course, that civic education was thrown out after the 60s, and in came Howard Zinn and his view of America, and more recently the 1619 Project. Now that means that is literally suicidal for the republic. And you notice today, I don't want to again be political, but there are many liberals who talk about saving democracy. I haven't heard a single one of them, actually very few conservatives either, talk about the republic. Right. But yes. That's, built that's a republic, not a democracy. That's a that's a word that um, that has sadly disappeared in in large degree from our civic discourse. And I think that going back to your uh, bemoaning American civic education, I think a lot of a lot of it is is that people really don't understand the difference. And so, for example, after recent elections, we hear a lot of discussion about uh, 
the vote for president about the popular vote and who wins the popular vote. But that's ultimately an irrelevant statistic because it's not based on a pure national popular vote. It's, it's, it's designed as a republic in a, in a way to mediate that popular vote mm-hmm. uh, in, in uh, states and, and localities. But again, as you know, the, one of the huge differences between the American and the French Revolution, the American Revolution has a realism about human nature. So you take Madison government being a reflection of our understanding of what humanity is. Coming down from, say, John Witherspoon of Princeton and the Reformation understanding, humans abuse freedom. Humans abuse power. That's why you have separation of powers, checks and balances, whereas the French Revolution, always incredibly naive. Man is born free, Rousseau says, but everywhere's in chains. Remove a chain or two, political, sexual, economic, whatever it is, and we'll all be happy, free, and fulfilled. No, we won't. And thank God the biblical revolution, uh, sorry, the American revolution, is much more realistic coming out of its biblical roots, and we're losing that realism. So there are many who want to trash the Electoral College, you know, pack the Supreme Court. In other words, break up the brilliant ingenuity of the framers ordering of the Constitution. Well, it's, you know, it's a challenge uh, because how do you, how do you dig out of that hole, I guess is the question. You, you quote, Hmm. you quote uh, Toynbee at the beginning of your book who points out that um, of the civilizations, I think it's 22 civilizations in in history that only 19 had, uh, or that 19 had fallen who had reached the level of decadence that the U.S. had reached. And, of course, that's not a recent observation that he made. That's mm-hmm. you know, some decades back. Do we have uh, an example? Is there is there a place we can look where we can actually see the kind of recovery for a nation like the U.S. that you're envisioning? Is, is, it, is it simply... You know, are we are we maybe being naive to even think it's possible, or or are we stuck? Well, again, a Jewish and a Christian view of freedom means that we're not fated. We have choices that are real, and nothing is inevitable. So the one thing we know nothing about is what's going to happen tomorrow. But we could make choices that work towards renewal and restoration. But I think we've got to start by understanding, unless we do, I argue in a book I'm writing now, this is a civilizational moment. And that's the word historians use. Every civilization has an inspiration, a dynamic. But there comes a point, and if you think for a minute, none of the earlier civilizations are around. Where is Egypt and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome? They've all gone. They're in museums. Why do we think we're different? Well, there comes a moment when the civilization loses touch with its inspiration, the wellspring. And when that happens over a period of time, the civilizational moment, you've only got three choices. Renew the inspiration, replace the inspiration, or decline. And I think the Western world, not just America, is at that point today. And so we're very close to it in this country. There will come a point of no return. I mean, uh, this, of course, goes back to the framers themselves. Or you take your great Kentuckian, Abraham Lincoln. And you remember his wonderful speech when he was only 28 at the Lyceum in Springfield, Illinois. As a nation of free men, either we will live free throughout time or die by suicide. In other words, free people bring themselves down. The greater challenge is internal, not external. And our challenges today are internal. The forces gaslighting the best of the American past and undermining any understanding of it. You know, that's that's something that I, uh, going back to Lincoln's reference there to to suicide james burnham wrote this you know the book the suicide of the west and uh, others have have talked about that 
Um, we're seeing right now, in a very literal sense, in, in the, many countries of the West, more so outside of the U.S., uh, we're seeing it in Canada, we're seeing it in the Netherlands and Europe and so forth, the literal promotion of suicide hmm. of its citizens by the state. We're seeing a decline uh, uh, in in birth rate. Uh, mm-hmm. We've reached the point in, in many Western countries of, of uh, but we're below replacement levels. Mm-hmm. We see the, the very literal suicide of the West, that there is this lack of, I guess, desire, civilizational desire to keep living, that we're, we're not producing new life and we're, we're actively killing off what we've got. I mean, that's a very, I don't, have we seen that before in, in human history? No, I think in terms of the pervasiveness, it is something radically new and very, very troubling. Now, I, I've been talking mainly in terms of freedom politically, but you could equally raise the questions at a deeper level, philosophically and religiously. So there's no question there's a link between faith and fertility. Just take our wonderful friends, the Jewish people. If you look, say, at the Reformed Jews, the most liberal and progressive, they have the lowest rates of replacement. You move across to the Orthodox views, Jews, and they have the highest views. And there's a definite link between people's philosophy of life, their worldview, and above all, the sense of hope that it brings them, and the way they eventually live, including whether or not they want to have children. I think that's very striking. Families with faith will have children. Thank the Lord for them and give them a future. And we believe in the future. In our family motto, the Guinness family, spes mea in Deo. My hope is in God. And I've always loved that um, because it gives you that sense of what Rabbi Sachs called living life in the future tense not just a matter of the past. I mean, I I love Burke, Edmund Burke, you mentioned him, and people like G.K. Chester. I love these people. Burke, uh, you know, is a Dubliner. I love a real Irishman. I love his writings. But many people think of conservatism only looking back. And I think the glory is we look back and we go forward best by going back first. But we do go forward. And we're not progressives in the political left sense, but we're striving towards ideals that have not yet been realized in our time. And we want to leave the world better in some small way. In my case, I know as a Christian, only when the Messiah returns will it really fully finally better. But we can do a good job in our own time, too. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. I think that you're you're right. Um in your understanding of what of what a a good and vibrant conservatism ought to be, and Burke was very much someone who looked to the past to understand the present in order to plan for the future. Right? He understood different circumstances are going to emerge. We we uh, we can't freeze history. We can't freeze the human enterprise. It's not a static thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can live by what what my uh, mentor Russell Kirk called the permanent things that those that there are these foundational principles that we look to and there are just certain immutable laws of human nature uh, that guide us and that we and that we understand and our founders understood those things maybe you know not always perfectly but but none of us ever understand anything perfectly the the the, the real difference comes between the traditionalist outlook and the progressive or cultural marxist outlook is is really a, a an issue of human nature there, there's a different vision of human nature there of what what people are and can be and should be mm-hmm. i couldn't agree with you more But one thing to add, you asked me earlier if there are any examples in history of such a turnaround. And I would say, take the first awakening. You know, historians have said that England, say, 1720s, early 30s, was inches away socially, spiritually, and so on, from the conditions that led to the French Revolution. 
And what changed everything was the first awakening led by people like John Wesley, Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards over here, and its enormous impact on reforms. Think of William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery. And in America, all that led up to the American Revolution. The first awakening is a key factor in, in the American Revolution. So, But if you look wider, say in the Bible itself, you can see that renewal or revival, restoration, is part of the way God intervenes in history, and history moves forward in that wonderful way. So, yes, nothing's over till it's over because of the possibility of renewal, and we are free and able to choose today to go a different way than we went yesterday. I th- I think that that's correct. I, I, you know, we we do see Israel being renewed. Obviously, the the time of Judges not so great, um, <laughs> and uh, and through but through God's intervention, uh, there is a renewal. And I think that ultimately, um, for the Christian, it seems to me that while there are things that we must do, should do, that we are not to be a passive people. But at the same time, civilizationally, uh, God God is interested in these things. These are not these are not um, just simply um, casual events, as far as God is concerned. That that He has a a plan and a purpose, and that there are things that can happen that we can't even imagine. Uh, reverses reversals of fortune, perhaps um, that that can that can cause a shift that we don't that we can't even you and I who are hope for such a change couldn't even mm-hmm. uh, contemplate what that might be. No, that, you're absolutely right. But there's no question that the inspira- I used the word inspiration dynamic earlier. The inspiration of the West we owe a lot to the Greeks, incalculable amount and a huge amount to the Romans. But the principal debt is to the Jews. And the main inspiration of the West is the Christian faith. Now, the Greek, the Roman, and the Hebrew civilizations were all Mediterranean. The West isn't. And it came out of the conversion of the barbarian people. So the integrity and effectiveness of the West today is bound to be shaped by the collapse, renewal, or replacement of the Christian faith. And I look at secular enlightenment in the 18th century onwards. It was a deliberate attempt to repudiate the Christian faith, but not the West, to take over the leadership of the West. Whereas we've got ideologies today, I call it the red wave, the rainbow wave, the black wave, that are all not only against the Christian faith in the West, they're against the West too. And that's what Douglas Murray calls this war on the West from within the West. And that's what's so radically new. Our enemies are inside, not outside. Right. I, th- I think I think that that's correct. That we're, we're really involved in and, and have been in an intellectual civil war, if you will, um, a, a, an ideological uh, civil war. Um, and and the fate of the West, which is ultimately, and I, I agree completely with you about that, the, the, the West, as we understand it, is fundamentally a Christian, uh, an outgrowth of Christianity and a Christian construct, I, I suppose. It is, a, it is the outworking of these people living out a Christian faith. Um, and we've been living off of that, that capital now for a couple of centuries, I suppose, um, in the West. And and there's not a lot of capital, uh, I guess to mix a metaphor, there's not a lot of capital fuel left in the tank right now. I think then that's sort of what, where you're at with our with this civilizational moment. I call it a, we're a cut flower civilization. You know, flowers yeah. in a vase can look really beautiful for a while. Right. But unlike flowers in the ground, they will die faster. And we have cut the roots. You take the European Union, which won't even recognize the Christian historical roots of Europe, which is absolutely stupid and also suicidal. But that's typical of so many. They want to deny the roots or see them only as negative. 
let's shift just a little bit and, and dive some into that idea of these roots, because I, I think that ties in well with your uh, your other book that came out this year uh, in 2022, The Great Quest, Invitation to an Examined Life and a Sure Path to Meaning. Because I don't think that we can we can shift, as we've been discussing, I don't think we can we can shift gears for the West and Western civilization as we have understood it. I don't think we can shift those gears without some sort of Christian renewal uh, on a at least somewhat widespread level. And this gets to that sort of um, that idea of meaning. You know, we see high suicide rates, as we talked about, and mm-hmm. low birth rates because people don't feel like there's any reason to go on. They don't, they don't feel a sense of meaning. They don't have a, a purpose to their lives. And in that kind of case, then why would you bring life into the world? Why would you continue on? No, I agree with you, Alan. You have a genuine nihilism abroad, fortunately limited. You take the loners who take part in the school shootings, or you take the ones you've referred to, say, teenage suicides. There's a nihilism. There are young Americans with no hope and no prospects for the future. So I disagree radically with the radicals, but they at least have in mind a revolution which they believe, wrongly, is going to lead to a better society. But the nihilists believe in nothing but destruction, either of themselves or of others. And that's exceedingly sad. So I wrote the book because, you know, with the rise of the religious nuns and that sort of thing, which we're told every day, many people think the faith is incredible. That's absolute nonsense. And so I think people need to know how they can think through a, the the road to faith that is highly rational and yet more than reason and, and deeply existential in, in the sense it gives them something to stake their whole existence on. You know, I, I do think that we face a unique problem uh, with getting people to ask those questions, those fundamental questions, because it seems as though the digital age, which, you know, we are beneficiaries of in many ways, you and I are able to speak as we are right now because of, of those things. But at the same time, we have a, a lot of social media that seems just purposefully designed to keep people distracted from asking fundamental questions. Uh, that that from seeking out why they why they are at all and what they should be doing with their life. I love the little phrase describing all that as they are weapons of mass distraction. <laughs> you know, which is the perfect summary of Blaise Pascal. You know, the in other words, if life is that important, meaning, making the most of it, purpose, fulfillment, why on earth aren't more people thinking about it all the time? And there are two simple reasons why they aren't. And one of them is Pascal's great idea, diversion. People don't want to think about ultimate reality, which, of course, is each one of us is going to die at some point. And so we surround ourselves with busy, entertaining distractions, and then we don't need to think. And there's never been a generation, you take our earphones and all that sort of stuff, never been a generation with a greater capacity to divert itself than this one. And so the challenge is to break through it to make people think again. Well, in your your book, uh, The Great Quest, is really designed to sort of call us to do that. How, how can I find meaning? What questions do I need to ask? And then going along with that and sort of looking at this sort of civilizational moment, it's not simply about what am I going to do, but can I help facilitate others to ask those questions? What, what can you and I do um, for, my, for ourselves and, f- and for others? Now, again, a great question. And I think one of the simplest ways of getting into the discussion is learning to ask questions. When people's minds are made up, Everything you say is rather like water off a duck's back. It just flows off. And so we've got to open up people's thinking by raising questions to them. 
Now, first, of course, questions allow us to discover where people are. What makes them tick? And by listening, we can love them. But as we listen to them, we're asking them questions that give us a clearer idea what's important to them. But often when we find out what it is that makes them tick, it's some crazy idea they're into or politics they're into. The way to to open their minds is not to hammer them with our position, which so many people do, but rather to raise questions that push them out to see so they understand where they are. And then they realize the importance of asking deeper questions and then they're back with us on the journey again. Well, it, it, it is a challenge, though, to break through. Uh, you know, you talked about water off of a duck's back. Um, there, there does have to be a point where people have enough consciousness to ask the question. I know you, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're talking there, sort of letting them letting them maybe in a tough love kind of way we might say letting them letting them find uh a place where things are bad enough that they ask the question but at the same time we don't want people to be so so bad that they choose never to ask the question and and you know embrace the suicidal culture that we see so it's you know it's it it and again, it feels like we're a little bit of a, at a catch-22. Well, I think good questions are what constitutes a seeker, a searcher. So someone who doesn't have questions, they're happy. They're complacent. They're satisfied. But when someone has a question, it's not that they believe. No, they have a question. The question means that they no longer believe what they used to believe, which it no longer satisfies. And so they become seekers or searchers. And that's the beginning of the great quest. And so questions are incredibly important, not just to subvert people and make them uncomfortable, no, but to trigger the seriousness of a genuine search. Because when they start, then the road becomes pretty well straightforward. I do think that if we're, you know, talk, again, talking about the civilizational moment, that if we're going to see some sort of shift, that it, it really is going to start with people asking, asking those fundamental questions. I don't, uh, I mean, there's, there's a certain, there's a certain degree um, of success you can have maybe from the top down in guiding the culture. Um, shifting uh, the narrative. But at the same time, I think that ultimately it's going to be to be successful, that you're going to have to have that kind of great awakening um, trend within the culture. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to have another great awakening that causes people in themselves to shift their vision of what their lives should be, and what culture should be. No, again, I agree with you totally. I remember a time I was in the Congress, and uh, a member said to me, if there's a flood, a small boy can put his finger in the dike and be a hero. But when I look out on America, what I see is a mudslide. Who can stop that? In other words, there are things you can do politically, a leverage here and activism, whatever but there's so much we simply can't touch. And what an awakening does, because it's God's work, not ours, it touches parts of society that nothing else like education, politics, and the arts, and so on, can really touch. And that's why it's so important. And I agree with you too. All that we're saying must never be just elitist. And that's the problem of the oligarchy today, that the elites know best for all of us. No, they don't. We've got to heal that gap between leadership and ordinary people. And the idea that some are deplorables or Archie Bunkers or whatever, that's anathema. In the Jewish and Christian understanding, a leader is a servant of the Lord, but a servant of the people. And so, you know, the question Rick Warren raises at the beginning of his book or the statement, it's not about you. If I'd ever... (laughs) had five minutes with President Trump, I would have said, politely, I trust, Mr. President, think of the fact 
the presidency is not about you. It's your leadership uh, as a servant of the American people that counts. Now, many on the liberal side are equally bad with their elitism. That's why you have this oligarchy. Right. And we're seeing, you know, right now um, we've been seeing the the release of what's called the, the Twitter files, where we're mm-hmm. uh, learning more about um, how the former regime at Twitter had, you know, you're talking about this, this expertocracy that they were kind of using, using that mindset to suppress certain views, guide other views. Um, and, and again, that's that, that's the, the, leftist march through uh through the institutions if and and now you know they've moved on to mass media and so forth and um and it's it it does hinder i think uh the ability to in a mass media age to get uh to get a message out successfully because there are these there are these um oligarchical uh, attempts and very often successes in in limiting uh, the ability to um, you know to, to share uh, dissident viewpoints uh, mm-hmm. from from that from that orthodoxy. Well, you know, the World Wide Web, as people know, was founded to be a sort of open, transparent, global community, uh, but that was a little naive. But the tragedy is something like Twitter which is founded to be the town square for a free republic, has become something highly illiberal. And I think what the Twitter files have shown us is absolutely appalling. I used to work for the BBC, so I have a high view of journalism and being a reporter. But at the same time, to see liberals becoming so illiberal that you have the press and the high-tech media in collusion with the government, censoring ordinary citizens with intellection, sorry, with election interference, and and really just mounting what's basically government propaganda. This is utterly appalling. But we mustn't just, and, and you're not, we mustn't just allow people to attack it negatively. We've got to say, how do we put back in place an open public square with freedom freedom of conscience, knowing how to debate with civility and so on. No, it's people need to be retaught how to do it a better way. I think that that, that touches on a, a very important aspect of what, of what we're talking about, that uh, we, we can't simply allow ourselves to be critics, and there's much to criticize and critique. But uh, from a traditionalist and a conservative standpoint, there has to be that positive imaginative vision. Russell mm-hmm. Kirk wrote about the moral imagination. Uh, it's a very Burkean idea that that we we need to have as we're facing kind of a unique situation with uh, technology in a place that you know the civilization has never known before. We don't have any experience with it. We need imaginative thinkers grounded in. Um, a traditionalist understanding of what society is and what people are for uh, to look forward to to help find a a a new way into uh, in into this unique uh, future that we that we have in front of us mm-hmm. part of my book Alan as you know having read it is Washington's vision of each person living under their own vine and fig tree. (laughs) And many Americans don't know that and what it meant to Washington. But it's incredibly relevant today in the light of everything that the global reset people from Davos are suggesting, whether you're moving towards a, a global republic with global control of everything. And which would be absolutely disastrous, both to sovereignty and, above all, to freedom. So we've got to have the balance that Washington had between self-government and local rule, living under your own vine and fig tree. We're better than in Kentucky. But then well, absolutely. National freedom <laughs> too, and then global freedom, but a balance between them. Many Americans forget that the word federal 
which is now a dirty word, the feds have come, or whatever, it, it comes from the Latin word covenant, fetters. And it meant a covenant agreement between the local and the national. So the town hall in a New England city or town was as important as the Congress on Capitol Hill. And there was a balance between them. But sadly, the national overbalanced the local. And today, the global is overbalancing both the national and the local. And we've got to have an imaginative recasting of it. Not in the name of the past, because we're moving forward. The world is global today. But how can we be truly local, national, and global all at once and guarantee freedom on each level? It takes a huge amount of thinking, and as you said, inspired imagination, to think that through. Well, let me shift gears to a couple of, of individuals that... Um that we've we've mentioned in passing that you you had some connection with you mentioned meeting Winston Churchill that I I'm very curious as to to the circumstances that led to that and if you had any had any impressions uh, of of that meeting. Well, I was thirteen or fourteen. I can't remember which, but one of my friends was the rector of the church in Westrom, Kent which is where Chartwell, Winston Churchill's country home was. And I was staying with them one weekend and all of a sudden there was the great man crossing the village green. So we walked out and went up and chatted to him very, very briefly. Uh, so I can't say I knew him anyway, but it was a privilege to, uh, to meet him. And I have a photograph of him flashing his famous V sign <laughs> signed by him. So, his courage, his sense of history, and what leadership was. I, I'm a huge admirer of Churchill. Was he perfect? No, of course not. But unquestionably the greatest person of my lifetime. Well, and, and I know that you also spent some time uh, with Francis Schaeffer, uh, certainly a, a, a in, in the late 20th century, uh, someone who had a, a tremendous impact on uh, Protestant Christian culture. What uh, what led you to that um, to that relationship with him, and and what uh, what did you take away from that? Well, what led me? I, I'd come to faith just before I went to university, and there we were at London University, sixties, drug, sex, rock and roll, Fellini films, Bergman films, free speech movement, you name it. Many people who are Christians then had deep, solid theology, but zero understanding of the culture. And it was kind of baffling, puzzling. And then one day someone said, come and hear this uh, American Swiss man. And many people didn't like him because of his unusual pronunciation of English. And there he was, the little goatee and Swiss knickerbockers and so on. But he connected all the dots. And that's what intrigued me. And so he went to films, he read the current novels, and he connected all the dots and made sense of the craziness of the early 60s in a way I'd heard no one else doing. Now, when I later went to his community in Switzerland, where I also happened to be, meet my wife, he was sometimes inflated by people as if he was great intellectual. He wasn't. He was passionate, though, about three things. And for me, that has lived with me ever since. He loved God passionately. You know, when he preached, there was almost always a time in his sermon when his voice cracked because he was overcome by the sublimity of what he was talking about. He loved people passionately. You could watch him. And you could see, talking to someone, a hippie or whoever, after two or three minutes, his eyes would well with tears. He was so compassionate and empathetic towards them. But he loved truth passionately. You may know Nietzsche's great line, all truth is bloody truth to me. No, his truth isn't casual, purely theoretical. Schaefer was like that. He could laugh, joke, had a lot of fun in his life. But things that were true, they mattered. And those three things have stuck with me ever since. How, how long were you there uh, in the community? Uh, three or four years. Oh, so uh, quite quite a quite a while, really. Yeah, and it, very formative because the '60s were explosive. 
um, and I was there in those years. And we had all sorts of people came through the community. Timothy Leary, leader of the Acid Heads, some of the Charles Manson gang, and so on. We had leaders from the Red Brigade from Germany, many people who'd studied under uh, Sartre and knew him well. Uh, it was a fascinating time. And all the questions of that period of time flowed through the community. Then, as you know, came the early 70s. It all died. Nobody hitchhiked. Uh, people didn't read books so much. And that whole wrestling, struggling, debating, protesting decade passed. And I'm glad that I came to faith in that time. So everything had to be thought back to square one. You couldn't take anything for granted. You couldn't just have a hand-me-down idea. No, no, no. You had to think it through for yourself. And I've been grateful for that ever since. And so much that I've done many, many decades, more than 50 years later, all grew out of the intense ferment of those extraordinary days in the 60s. Well, I can't let you go without uh, without touching on your quite famous last name, your surname, Guinness. I think it's, it's one that... Uh, perhaps listeners may think of in a different context. And my understanding is you have, uh, you have relation to, uh, to the great brewer of the past. I, I do indeed. I'm the great, great, great grandson of Arthur Guinness. And very, very grateful and proud. And I, I'm actually part of the family that is the poorer end of the family. They say there are the brewing Guinnesses, the banking Guinnesses, and the gentleman Guinnesses, which is another <laughs> way of saying the poor Guinnesses. But my side of the family has kept alive the original vision of Arthur and the first few generations because they made a fortune. At one stage, the brewery was the biggest brewery in the world. They were, for a long time, Ireland's most generous philanthropists, giving away millions and millions and millions, but always caring for the education, for the health, and for all sorts of things for their workers. So one time I landed at Dublin Airport and was driving in a cab, and I don't know how my name came up, but the cab driver stopped and came round to the passenger door. And with a kind of mock seriousness, he knelt down as if I was the Pope to kiss my hand. <laughs> he said, I'm partly joking, but your family has done so much for my family and for the whole of the city, and we're grateful. And that now was out of their faith, because Arthur Guinness came to faith through the first awakening that I mentioned earlier, the preaching of John Wesley in Ireland. And he was a strong Christian, as was his son and grandson. And the whole generosity came out of that. Well, I, I don't suppose that um, as a family member, they they send you uh, free um, free bottles or anything. Sadly not. The uh, family doesn't actually own the brewery now. It's, it's <laughs> taken over by a, um, a global corporation. Uh, too, too, too often the story that is told of these places. Well, that is a, an incredible uh, legacy to uh, to to be able to look back to and be a part of with your family. And you have, uh, you have seen much and experienced much and there uh, it's certainly, uh, certainly a lot to learn from, uh, from what you've seen and heard. Well, thank you, Alan. What a privilege to be with you because I think your vision behind the podcast is one that people need to wrestle with because it's not just about when we say traditionalism and conservatism, people think, Oh, the hidebound past. Not at all. We're talking about things that are the permanent things, the first principles, so they are the most important thing for the human future. And we need to re-explore them and bring them out in the context of the challenge of our time. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. So people, uh, let people know where they can, they can find you online. And uh, are you on social media at all? Not much. No. Probably a wise choice. But osguinness.com, you can see my books and some of my talks and so on. But what a privilege to be with you. I appreciate it very much. The books uh, are Zero Hour America and The Great Quest, and there are many more besides that. Those are the most recent, and it sounds like uh, you are working on another one. Do you have an idea when that one might be out? 
Well, I have one coming out in March, a follow-up to The Great Quest called Signals of Transcendence, which I love. Ten stories of people who began their search because a signal of transcendence broke into their life, like C.S. Lewis, the atheist, being surprised by joy. And then uh, the book I'm finishing hasn't got a publisher yet. It's on the crisis of the West. And the title at the moment is Our Civilizational Moment. Well, perhaps we can uh, we can speak again at some point in the future about some of these things. I would uh, hope we could. I appreciate very much you being on and uh, hope we can maybe meet one of these days. Thank you. Thank you.